And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello, welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And my name is Harmony. And this week, I told you we were talking about Displacement by Kiku Hughes. And we are not talking about Displacement because this is another episode of Maggie and Harmony pretend to be political commentators. As I'm sure you are all aware, we are recording this on May 8th, 2022. And this week, the leak happened where the Supreme Court majority looks as though it's going to overturn Roe versus Wade. So Harmony and I thought it'd be important to talk about that. We'll talk about displacement in two weeks. So that episode is still coming if you were excited, but we had to we had to pivot. Things are happening in the world. Yeah. So fitfully enough, we're talking about this on Mother's Day. And Maggie found a nice little poem about reproductive justice that we're going to use to ground our conversation a little bit. So Maggie, before we start off, do you want to give us a brief introduction of this poem and why you chose it versus some of the other poems that I know you were looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So I was interested in this poem for a couple of reasons. First of all, I want to say that almost all of the poems I was looking at came from the Split This Rock, which is an organization that calls poets to create a greater role in public life and kind of foster a national network of socially engaged poets. And for a long time, they ran an abortion rights poetry contest. So when I saw that, I was like, this feels like a natural fit to find a place to talk about all of this. And then the other reason I was really drawn to this poem as well is because this is a poem that is based off of and inspired off of a real court case that happened to a woman named Parvi Patel, where in 2015, she was sentenced to 20 years in prison for inducing an illegal abortion herself and then also sentenced to essentially letting that fetus die once it was born. The court posited that the fetus had been born alive and that she had then let it die. So she was essentially charged with infanticide. Um, However, the court case was really bullshit, (laughs) in my opinion, at the very least. And I think it was called into question by quite a few news sources. Most Notably, the New York Times, Emily Bazelon wrote a huge article all about the court case and sort of why the facts are not really, don't really seem like the facts, I would say here. And there's a lot of uh, evidence that was put forth that is like heavily contested in the medical world that's referenced in the poem. And Harvey Shaw, who wrote the poem, Saraswati praises your name even when you have no choice, actually starts the poem with the beginning of this New York Times article to really ground everything. So I thought that that was important that this was based off a real thing that happened that is still happening to a woman who I believe has now been in prison for like six or seven years. And I think also really goes to show that I think often when we hear about abortion rights and reproductive justice, the 
media gets dominated when big things happen by a bunch of white women being like, how could you? How dare you? This is my body. This is my right, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, reproductive rights are not just about women's rights, but they're very, very largely about racial justice and about class justice. Um, and I liked this poem because I think that it really, it, it decenters that kind of narrative uh, and talks about a real woman, an Indian woman, who is living out the very, very real consequences of what happens when reproductive justice is given and taken away and criminalized. Yeah, some of the things that were referenced in those articles that Maggie referenced about Pervi Patel and this case being BS, one of the things that they they referenced was a peer-reviewed study that found 413 arrests or similar interventions targeting women because of their pregnancy had happened between 1973 to 2005. And I imagine that those numbers are probably a lot smaller and that these cases have probably risen even more in recent years because if you've been paying attention, uh, which I really haven't been, but we'll talk about that in a second, for maybe about, about the past 20 years, there has been a lot of organized movement from the pro-life campaigns to get Roe overturned, essentially, or to make abortions less accessible to women. Since Roe became a part of our, our Supreme Court law, there has been a lot of resistance, and it's only gotten worse from state to state. And what happened to Pervy Patel happened back in 2015. So since that time, there's been an even larger push and even more infanticide and restrictions on abortion access. I think for me, this moment and this poem is really important because like Maggie, I'm a millennial woman, almost kind of on the Gen Z cusp, and I live in coastal areas. And so I think for a lot of us, that narrative of the the middle class white woman being the face of abortion has maybe like turned us away from the issue a little bit because we've been dealing with all of these other really big things. And it felt like that argument for so long ignored other big important things like class justice. But bodily autonomy, as Maggie already hinted at, doesn't just have to do with abortion. It has to do with trans rights. It has to do with gay rights. And so there is a lot riding on this law. And it is important that we do something and pay attention to it because this, this draft opinion came out, but like we, we knew already when the last conservative justice was confirmed that this was going to be the case, that they were going to try and overturn Roe, that they already had the votes. And we've all just been kind of ignoring it because we didn't have the capacity to deal with it, I think. So let's get started with this poem. <laughs> First off, it's called, as Maggie told us maybe already, Saraswati praises your name even when you have no choice. Let's focus on that title. So did you tell us who Saraswati is? Saraswati is a goddess in the Hindu religion. She was the daughter of Brahma and then the wife of Brahma. Um, and one of the reasons that she's so famous is because she pushed back heavily against Brahma's um, pursuant of her and 
only became his wife essentially because it would save the world. But she's the goddess of knowledge. She's the goddess of art and music and aesthetics. Um, And I believe that she's often referred to as Mother Saraswati. I am, if it wasn't fucking obvious, not a Hindu person. And so this is all based on just some Google research and some limited experience having a a friend who is Hindu and um, has very kindly sort of let me a little bit into that culture throughout my lifetime. So I just want to say if any of that is wrong, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Uh, I'm not trying to be an expert here, but as far as I can tell, that's some like base context for who Saraswati is and what she represents and potentially why she is the sort of title of this poem. Yeah, so we might have some allusions right here to motherhood. And this poem is written as though Pervi Shah, the author, is talking to Pervi Patel. So right away, she's honoring her, even though Pervi Patel doesn't have a choice in what she's doing. Do we want to read the poem? Yeah, I think we should. All right, so this poem opens up with a quote from, again, that New York Times article by Emily Bazelon. And it says... Patel, a 33-year-old woman who lives in Indiana, was accused of feticide, specifically illegally inducing her own abortion, and accused of having a baby whom she allowed to die. The facts supporting each each count are murky, but a jury convicted Patel and she was sentenced to 20 years in prison. You had a name no one could hold between their teeth. So they pronounced a sentence. Had you the choice? You would pilgrim to the Vermilion. It is no... Ganges, but you could dream for tiger's blood, for eight tributaries to open. Into palms, bearing girls unfettered, before your baby. Was a baby, could it float? Could a stillness of breath be the air asking? For alchemy, as you cast your life as a spell? These days the world is looking for witches. You had been. Searching for a day beyond labor, option of pleasure, a choice unscripted. By parents, borders unscripted. By choices, a passing. Salvation, you had not expected this state. Punishment. For a wrung womb, these days, you mourn. When you are free, you won't. Be able to bear the children you wanted. In the silence, you pronounce your name as if it came. From the crucible of river, from the first throat broken, into a cobra of desiccated streams. Ooh. Okay, so there's a lot going on here. You had a name no one could hold between their teeth. I don't know. I don't know. Wait. So they pronounced a sentence. So I think that there's two big things happening here, which is that half of this poem is a direct reference to things that happened in the trial. I would assume that in a trial in kind of, you know, suburban Indiana, people were probably a a jury of what I'm assuming is probably mostly white folks. A judge that was probably a white person was probably mispronouncing her name. Oh, Um, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. Yeah. And so, so, so she, I think she's saying like, you were automatically treated as other and outsider in the place that you live in the society that you, that you've lived in. Um, And because of that, they passed this jail sentence. Like, I think that she's already starting it with this implication that this happened to Purvi Patel because she's an Indian woman, because she wasn't a white woman, essentially, because she didn't sort of conform, so to speak, heavy quotations to the status quo. So I think that half of the poem is sort of really playing with 
with that imagery and aspect of things. The author talks about floating. Did your baby float later in the poem? That's in relation to a contested medical test that they ran on the fetus to sort of like prove that she let it die or whatever. And then I think that the other half is related to imagery related to Saraswati and Hinduism and things like that. So then we move to like the Ganges River and we talk about the eight tributaries. Saraswati has eight arms in most of her depictions. So I think that's like a pretty clear sort of call out, I think. And then the the third thing I think is happening is sort of like the interrelation of all of those things uh, through the imagery of water, which is, I think that you're, you're often thinking about like the water of the mother's womb or think you're thinking like that. But then also Saraswati and I think from what I understand quite a bit of the Hindu religion uh, is strongly related to rivers and water and things of that nature. So then there's like the tie in between both of those things there. So to me, I think those are like the three things happening in this poem. That was a lot. That was a lot very fast. Can we take it line by line? Sure. We can try. Okay. Okay. So I think that that makes a lot of sense to me that that they couldn't say her name. So they're giving her a sentence. They're already othering her. Now, here's another part. You would pilgrim to the Vermilion. It is no Gangji, but you could dream for tiger's blood for eight tributaries to open. So you've already alluded to this a little bit, and you've already pointed out some of what's going on here. So she's in Indiana. Hervey Pertel is in Indiana. When I looked up Vermilion, I found out that it was a town in Ohio, but it's also the red pigment that was used during biblical times for painting. And so not knowing very much about Hinduism. I wonder if there is a relation to that pigment, that red pigment, and maybe celebration of some sort. But Vermilion, the city, is right on Lake Erie. So I wonder if there is a sort of sacredness being related here to this place that is near Purvi Patel and where she lives in Indiana, perhaps as like, this is a near place that you could have made a a pilgrimage to. It isn't this place of your homeland, but it's still sacred in some way. What do you think? I think it's maybe the second one, although I didn't know that about Vermilion. So that's uh, the color. So that's really interesting. And I'll have to think about that. There is also a Vermilion River in uh, the Midwest, which I just discovered via Google. Oh, Um, so that's probably. So I I think that like there's... (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's in Minnesota, I think. So I think that there is being a very one-to-one drawn here. You know, like, this is no Ganges River, but had you the choice, like, potentially this is where you would have gone. A place where you could have had, like, a spiritual connection to what's happening, how you could have, like, thought through this. Not differently, necessarily, but just, like, the choice was taken away from her. But also, I think, to go on any sort of spiritual journey about the choice that she made, and that's not to imply that, like, she could have or should have made a different choice. Whatever happened, she made the choice that she did, and I think it was perfectly valid and it's bullshit that indiana is a state that only has 11 abortion clinics and a trillion and one restrictions on who can get an abortion i know that for some people after they make a decision like that sometimes they like to reflect sometimes they like to potentially connect spiritually that choice was taken away from her i think that the ganges river is often used to lens and i think maybe the implication here is had you the choice you could have gone and felt like you were starting anew and starting fresh and felt confident in your choice uh, but that choice that was ripped away from you. You mentioned this relationship to water earlier. I also think that it's not just about cleansing, or maybe it's like this idea of cleansing away blood because we have that connection with vermilion being such a red pigment. 
Yes, it's a river. Then again, this idea of this vibrant red comes back. But you could dream for tiger's blood, which is a another vibrant red color. So to me, I'm also seeing this idea of like birth, right? When you're going through the canal and there's this blood washing out. But it with the cleansing, it also feels like I'm washing off the blood, you know? Yeah, that's what I was trying to get out and, and failing. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. I was not being clear. You have interpreted me correctly. Maggie also mentioned the four eight tributaries to open and the idea of eight-armed Saraswati, of the eight arms of Saraswati. So tributaries, I didn't know this either. I didn't know what that word meant. So I went to my handy dandy Google, are also rivers which I think is interesting. Oh, really? I didn't know that either. No. (laughs) I can hear our freshman year intro to Lit Professor in the back of my head right now screaming, you need to look up the words you don't know. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good good thing. It's a handy skill to learn to look up the words, (laughs) especially with poetry, because who knows what's going on in poetry ever. Okay. So yeah, this idea of these eight rivers too. So we're back to this cleansing idea. But I I like that you've tied that in now to this divine motherhood. And these eight rivers into the palms of bearing girls unfettered. So to me, she's directly talking about chi- like women of childbearing age. <laughs> Yeah. Or girls who can have babies. And then Maggie also mentioned this, the the could it float, could a stillness of breath be the air asking? So in the New York Times article, as Maggie already talked about, the main expert the prosecutor used to determine whether Pervy Patel's baby was alive before it died, because that is what helps determine this infanticide, was taking the baby's lungs to see if they float. Uh, like and dropping it in water to see if it floated which the new york times brings up is is very similar to this idea of witch trials and also is similarly scientifically problematic like does not have a real scientific basis it's just that's just wild to me so obviously that's what our author is referring to but could a stillness of breath be the air asking for alchemy? So it, it's it's also kind of, I don't know, this is interesting. Was a baby, could it float? Could a still, could this death be the air asking for magic as you cast your life as a spell? So her life is the one that is is put on the line here and is the spell worth casting? I don't know, that's interesting. To me, that kind of seems like the author is placing this idea of of choosing, choosing whether or not you want a child, choosing to have an abortion as a sort of spell because you're determining how the rest of your life is going to go. I don't know. Does that make sense, Maggie? Yeah, I think it's that. And then in conjunction with the questioning of which is the, I think, crux of so many conservative arguments against abortion is like the whole when is a person a person thing right like uh also playing the idea of like before your baby was a baby well was it a baby (laughs) you know like did it float so I think that it I, I think that it's that like dual imagery there absolutely then the world is looking for witches you had been searching for a day beyond labor. These or these days the world is looking for witches. I think that's pretty self explanatory and 
if I go into it more, I'm going to go too off topic. <laughs> We're going to have a whole different podcast episode. Yeah. We're going to be talking about domestic violence all day, all, every day. All right, let's see. You had been searching for a day beyond labor, option of pleasure, a choice unscripted. This to me is also pretty, pretty, pretty straightforward. This idea of, you know, wanting to have sex and having it be not necessarily a faded choice like just a choice you make for yourself unscripted by parents it's not i that i feel like could have dual dual meaning too like your parents don't have a choice over whether you have sex but also you don't have to be a parent right just because you have sex doesn't mean that you have to fulfill this role yeah i think so and i think that that's probably also a tie into the new york times article because that article speculates that potentially the reason that patel didn't you know, seek out one of the 11 abortion clinics that were in Indiana was because it would be like against her parents' wishes and against her her parents' choices, which I don't have enough context about to speculate further, but I think that that's probably also a direct tie-in there. By choices of passing salvation, I wonder if the salvation is referring directly to the pills that she bought. Which, by the way, in the New York Times article, it also said, it also said that even though she got these pills, there wasn't any trace of them within her system. So they don't know if she actually even took those pills. I think they don't even know if they if she actually bought them. Uh, oh, the right. evidence that they were using was a text message to a friend saying that she was considering purchasing these pills from Hong Kong. And also, I think just goes to show to the level of like ridiculous restriction on all of this in the U.S., because the problem would have been literally that she had gotten them from outside the U.S. Yeah, they're legal. <laughs> they're legal. It like the the whole problem would have been that she had ordered them out online from outside the United States, and probably without a doctor too. She hadn't gotten them yeah. through like the the proper the proper channels. You had not expected the state punishment for a wrong womb. These days you mourn when you are free. You won't be able to bear the children you wanted. Oh my God. That line, I hadn't like really interpreted that line before, but that's really sad. So even when she gets out, her life is just ruined now. That's very sad. Okay. And I think too, just to dive into that a little bit more is I think also pushes back against this idea that I feel like there's this conservative like myth floating around out there that people who get abortions hate children and never want children and blah, blah, blah. But for a lot of women who have abortions, it's because... Maybe they do want children someday and it's just like a not right now sort of situation. And now that choice has also been taken away from her because she's been imprisoned for all of her 20s and and 30s and and 40s, you know? Yeah, all of her, the rest of her fertile life. Yeah. I mean, there's this statistic out there that says that one in four women have had abortions. And I I mean, obviously, women aren't the only people having abortions, but also not everyone is going to report whether or not they have an abortion. Mm -hmm. So there might be problems with that stat, but that's the one that the news keeps referring to. And it seems likely to me, just from like the people I know in my life, and most of the people who have told their abortion stories to me are also mothers. So, <laughs> and all of the all of the research that they do when they look in to see who has abortion, it, as Maggie pointed out, it's usually women who who already have children or who go on to have children later in their life. Yeah. Yeah. Which isn't to say as well that if you if you have an abortion because you just don't want children, like 
I'm also here for that choice. That's up to you. I'm good with that. I just think it's interesting here because this it is pushing against a like vision, I think, of women who have abortion that isn't necessarily statistically true and is often villainized by the right. Yeah. In silence, you pronounce your name as it as if it came from the crucible of river, from the first throat broken into a cobra of desiccated streams. So this line I also wanted to pay special attention to. I don't know if I have a great interpretation for it, but we have the river coming back. And then also this idea of cobra is important to me. Maggie, do you know if there's a relationship between Saraswati and and cobras or snakes? Uh, I don't off the top of my head know if Saraswati is particularly related to cobras. This is where... This is, this is where my limited knowledge of Hinduism fails us. But I will say that the other thing that's important about this line is that it calls back to the beginning of the poem, right? Where it's uh, people who can pronounce her name uh, out loud versus her to herself at the end of all of this in silence, saying her own name and taking power in that. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, wait, let me read that again. Let me look at this again. In silence, you pronounce your name as if it came from the crucible of river all right sorry no i'm stuck i'm stuck now again on words Ugh, poetry is so hard man a crucible is a ceramic or metal container in which metals or other substances i don't think that's what she's talking about a situation of severe trial or in which different elements interact leading to the creation of something new huh so a severe trial of a river Okay, okay, I see that. So we we got rebirth now. So she's claiming her name and she is rebirthing her life. She went through this trial and now something is um something new is happening. And I feel like river also has to do with a fertility of sorts, maybe like a metaphorical fertility. From the first throat broken into a cobra. Huh. Well, I wonder if the trial, of if like the crucible is yet to come here, right? Because she went through the trial, but now she is going to be imprisoned for 20 years. So I wonder if this is like her stealing herself from this new path. And I think that the desiccated streams is interesting because it's almost like this crucible has pushed her off the main river and into, into this new path where she's going to have to, where she's going to change and she's going to have to find her power and I wonder if this idea of like holding on to her name is like the idea of that core of yourself as you're pushed into trial and tribulation. I could definitely see that. But it's saying that her name, so you pronounce your name as if it came from the crucible of river. So it's coming from this horrible thing. Or that's the way that she's pronouncing it. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't know what to do too much with the cobra but snakes are also they also have to do with rebirth (laughs) and transformation of some sort so maybe that has something to do with that that's my analysis shitty english class shitty english class (laughs) all right let's talk about roe versus wade (laughs) Uh, yeah roe versus wade well i feel like the the poem as i said at the very beginning i feel like this poem is was a good setup because the People that the overturning of Roe versus Wade are going to affect are largely people who live in states like the Midwest, states in the Deep South, red states, essentially. And then on top of that, largely low-income people and people of color. And additionally, I'm saying people here very specifically because this is not a woman's rights issue. 
Many people have uteruses of all uh, gender identities and backgrounds. Many people will potentially want an abortion that aren't necessarily women. Uh, and it's really important that we shift this conversation away from being just a woman's rights conversation. Because that's the other thing I feel like I've been seeing in like this middle-class white lady takeover of anger is like, this is a woman's issue and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, my man, there is... <laughs> <laughs> Gender is so much more complicated than this. Like, please, let's not do this. This is going to be such a problem for trans people, for non-binary people. Like, there is more than just two genders in this world. Thank you. That's my TED Talk. I think, too, yeah. No, I agree with you. I think that it bothers me, too, not just for that very, like, literal... This is not just a woman's rights issue because there are people with uteruses who are not women. I think it bothers me me too though because it's it's a it's an autonomy issue, right? And even though abortion is going to be the is the focus right now, this law protects Roe versus Wade protects privacy and private bodily autonomy for almost everything else in our country at this moment. Mm-hmm. I just keep going back. There was there was one time where I covered, kind of on my own, I covered this big pro-life rally that was happening in New York City. And then I went and talked to the counter-protesters who were protesting the pro-life rally itself. And one of them was a tr- like an openly trans woman. And she was telling me, why she was at the counter rally because I was like hey why are you here what's what what do you have to say about all this you know asking her questions and she was like even though I don't have a uterus as a trans person it's really important for me to protect bodily autonomy mm-hmm. so it's not <laughs> it's not like fear-mongering when people talk about how this might affect gay marriage or interracial marriage even these very basic things because from a legal standpoint, Roe was the precedent for why mm-hmm. we now have these other Supreme Court law cases. And even if you don't have a uterus, when somebody's rights get stripped away, it does have a reverberating effect on everyone, which is something yep. I think we've tried to focus on in this podcast now. Like, you, this might not directly affect you, but it still affects you. And this is why you actually do have a stake in it. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's it's super true. It's super true. Um, I don't understand a ton about like the privacy law aspect of it, but I do know that the precedent that Roe v. Wade set is it's used a lot, my friends. It it's not it's not just same sex marriage. It's er, it's not just trans rights. Uh, as Harmony mentioned, it can go all the way back to interracial marriage, but there's tons and tons and tons of other cases for things that we have now as a country taken for granted as rights for decades now that can be overturned if Roe v. Wade is overturned. It's it's actually kind of mind-boggling to me as somebody who's like not very well versed in law that isn't copyright law how many things in this country are based specifically off the Roe v. Wade case. I mean, I think that's how law tends to work right like you set a legal precedent but it it does end up all being interconnected yeah so what do we do like what do we do if we're living in a state like new york i'm sure maybe washington is also having talks about this where they decide to codify abortion into state law right 
I'm unlikely to see, at least for the next 20 years, <laughs> at least until we get some major political backlash from the right and, and start like and start getting more organized here in this state, I'm unlikely to see the effects of having Roe versus Wade overturned right away. So what do what do I do? Do I protest? Do like what what should we be doing right now? Do you have any thoughts on this? I don't know. I wish I did. I I I went to a protest earlier this week and it felt really good and it felt like the right thing to do, but simultaneously, I mean, when this for, when um what's her face first got elected to the Supreme Court, the governor of Washington immediately came out and said, if you live in Washington, this is essentially not going to be a problem for you. We are going to protect abortion rights here and protect as many people as we can who don't live in Washington who come here to get abortions. So there is part of me that feels like I'm protesting in my state. And like, that is, but like, that's a very symbolic thing right now, because it's not under threat where I live. Like, is this actually the, the like the right thing to do? I think that what I've been doing is if you have capacity to, I would say donate to the ACLU because they're the people who are largely probably going to be handling a lot of the court cases that come out of all of this. I've been also donating some supplies to women's prisons to try and support people who have already been incarcerated and, you know, for a multitude of reasons, but also just to like offer up hygienic supplies and things like that um, to people who are sort of already, who have already, I think, suffered under the consequences of all of this and have been swept under, under the rug, like potentially people like Pervy Patel have been, um, but whose numbers are probably going to increase greatly now. Um, and then I think as well, the other thing is that I'm still sort of navigating and trying to figure out is try and figure out like how we like what kind of public pressure is going to make whatever wobbly judge who signed off on this majority of opinion uh, maybe rethink this? Because I think that it's potentially possible. And I've seen some speculation on this um, in friends of mine who are lawyers and who, you know, work in the legal community that like the person who leaked this risked their entire career to do it. And it's, potentially possible that they did it because they felt like somebody in the majority of opinion would buckle under enough public pressure to reverse their opinion. Um, so like, how do we make enough noise, make enough outcry to show that we cannot, that, that like we as the general public won't accept this. And then I think the other thing that I'm thinking about that I've been thinking about loosely for a while, but this is really like, solidified to me is like how do we make how do we live in a world where your where your rights which are supposed to be inalienable human rights are based off a court of like nine non-elected people uh who can and will and do take those rights away willy-nilly like how do we reform that system what pressure do we have to put on to like figure out how to make that more just and I feel like at the end of the day, all of those things are probably good things to do and still feel really ineffective and really ineffectual because if this opinion goes through, it's not going to save anybody. And I desperately want to find like the activism and the answer that like participates in a fix to this problem. But to be honest with you, I don't know that I necessarily have that suggestion of like what the solution to participate is right at this moment. But I am on the hunt and I am very sure that people smarter than me and more plugged into all of this have better suggestions. 
But like, those are the things that I've been doing and thinking about in relation to all of this to like, try and make some sort of meaningful change. I think what you just talked about highlighted for me, this dichotomy between having but between working within and outside the system. And as listeners might know, I identify as an anarchist. I think our system is broken. I think we need a new one that isn't hierarchically based. But I do still believe that it's useful to work within a system as well if you can, in addition to doing outside work. So I think Maggie pointed out, she pointed out some of her pathways, which were maybe a little bit more outside the system, um, such as protesting, such as giving aid to people in women's prisons. I think that there are also probably ways that are effective to work within within the system by, by hyper-localizing. So yeah, by figuring out what access is like in your in your community. I know that in New York City, even though we have probably more abortion access than a lot of other people across the country, we still have a number of fake abortion clinics where women are tricked into, into going there thinking that they're there to have an abortion and then they're presented with a bunch of information about how abortion is wrong and how they should be looking to adoption agencies to help them to help them with unwanted pregnancy and these clinics are primarily located in areas that are more impoverished and primarily uh, dominated by people of color so they're like they're very targeted so one way that you could work outside the system is to look at your hyper-local community and look at what access looks like there. But I also think that ways that we can work within the system, within the political structure that we currently have, needs to be going to our hyper-local officials or even our state senators, right? No matter where we live, even if we live in a place with without great abortion access, we need to be talking to our representatives and telling them that we want that access. And then also, as Maggie said, this this draft opinion isn't law yet. There's likely been more drafts. We don't even know if this was the final opinion from the courts. I think that it is likely because we know where a lot of the conservative judges stand, that this was the predominant opinion, but we can still sway one of the judges, hopefully. So we are the majority opinion. And so like making that opinion clear, making it clear that we don't want Roe versus Wade overturned could be helpful as well. So I don't know. I don't know, everyone. We live in a declining, <laughs> a declining country. And that's okay. We're just going to um, try and do the best that we can each and every day. Yeah. And I think too, something that you just said that's also really important is if you live in a state where your abortion access is probably going to be upheld via state law. I think that the other aspect of hyperlocal that Harmony also touched on that's really important is don't don't take that for granted. Like you have to continue to tell people that you want that and that that's important to you. 
but also don't assume that everybody in your state has equal access, right? Yeah. Like don't assume that everybody has the same privileges that you do and make sure that you're fighting for the people who don't. Like in Washington specifically, Washington is a ginormous state in terms of geography, but in terms of population, the majority of the population lives west of the Cascades and the majority of the population west of the Cascades uh, tend to vote blue. And that is the sole reason that Washington is a blue state. But when you go east of the Cascades, which is where the majority of the geographical portion of the state is, uh, that entire side of the state pretty much is all Republican. It's all red. So I think that in my, um, and I and I would assume that because of that, there's probably a lot different abortion access out there already, uh, even if it's codified into into state law. So I think that one of the things I'm going to do is potentially um, fight, uh, look into what happens on the on the east side of the Cascades, see what I can do to help support women who live over there. Because um, obviously, talking about red and blue is like the biggest generalization to begin with that has that needs like ten times more nuance that I just can't give right now. Um, and make sure that people over there are, are as equally supported as I know people, generally speaking, in my community are. And then also dig deeper into my community and make sure that um, lower income neighborhoods and neighborhoods that are predominantly made up of uh, people of color aren't having, don't have like these shady abortion clinics that Harmony was talking about too. I think that that's really important. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else we want to say? So go out there, fight um, when you have capacity to. I, I personally don't have any capacity until tomorrow, until after tomorrow. And then and then I'm hoping to do some action. But I know that I will do the action when I have the capacity. So do what you can with your capacity. It matters. We should care. Even if you don't have a uterus, it matters for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember somebody being like, I don't know about abortion because I, I'm not I'm not into men. And I was like, no, no, that's not, that's not how that works. <laughs> no, you should still care. <laughs> you should still care. Um, yeah, well, I think too, uh, I know that you were like half joking earlier when you were talking about being us being in a declining state, but also like not joking. I will say that like, this is the one thing where like giving up hope right now, I don't think is an option and giving up the fight isn't an option because if we just roll over and like take stuff like this, the declining state's going to happen a lot faster. And um, I know that people who don't look like me are going to be the people who are uh, victims of that way before uh, it gets to me, essentially, you know? Um so I think it's especially important not to not to just lay down and be like, well, this might as well happen, you know, uh, as much as it feels like this is a huge thing that you can't that you might not be able to personally affect. It's still important to get out there and make your voice heard and make sure that you that it's very clear what the majority populace opinion is on this, um, because when we give when we give up and when we start just letting things happen, that's when. To me, I feel like that's when we've really lost because that's when authoritarian government regimes are just going to come in and be like, all of these changes. And then we're really going to be in a declining state. I mean, more authoritarian. We're already living in an authoritarian regime. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I agree with you, Maggie. We can't give up. We should still do it. But like, I also think that because so much is happening, I don't know. I'm 
in my in my second to last day of grad school, folks, I think because so much is happening, I know for me, and I imagine a lot of other people, like, I need to admit it. I need to remind myself, like, we are in a declining state, like, while this is happening. And I think that you can do that without rolling over. Like, just because we are in a declining empire does not mean that we can't do something about it. Oh, yeah. I wasn't necessarily responding to you, but I have seen a lot of people just generally be like, well, what can we do about that? Like, I don't agree, but like, there's no change that can be made. That's the dangerous mentality. You can acknowledge that you're in a declining state and still try and fight that declining state. Like, it's possible to have both of those things happen simultaneously. There are more of us than there are of them. (laughs) That's just like, that's the thing. You are the labor force, Um, especially when you work with other people. You can make change if you have enough voice and enough manpower. Um, and But if you are like me and you're completely burnt out and you're like, this is happening, I don't know how to cope, I think that you can look for small ways to make change yeah. um, and try and work it into your into your everyday schedule, hopefully. But yeah, it is important to keep up hope because it's not acceptable. No one's rights should be stripped away. None of this is acceptable. So you have to do something about it. We all have to keep doing something about it. Yeah, for we sure. have to you do don't... more because this we knew that this was going to happen. People have been telling us this for the past 20 years. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true. And I mean, when I say change and don't give up hope, I think that largely what I'm talking about is like doing the small things in your day to day life, because the majority of us don't have the means or resources to change your entire life to be able to champion one cause and like fly out to Washington, D.C. if you don't already live there and like really like protest at the Supreme Court and do all of that. There are some people that do have that capacity, that do have that mental capacity, that financial capacity, the ability to take off work. Um, But that's not the majority of people. It's about small, sustainable changes that you can keep up outside of whatever what's going to happen with Roe v. Wade is over too. Because I think that your point as well is that we've been told that this was going to be, that this was going to happen. We knew it when that last conservative Supreme Court justice was voted on. There was a little bit of noise then and then it died down. It's about building things into your daily life and capacity when you can that keep up consistent streams of change and push back so that it's not just one uproarious wave, hopefully, um, when things happen. Exactly. They want us to all be burnt out. So the, the key is finding sustainability. And like, yeah, it's yeah, a, yeah. if you're burnt out, like, take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. That That is action because if you're too burnt out, you can't, you can't fight for change. It's true. And you also can't be the most educated person on everything ever, right? Like Harmony and I run a feminist podcast. So talking about reproductive rights and how it relates to bodily autonomy, autonomy rights and how it relates to racial justice and class justice, like, For us, that's all very central to the mission of what we do here. And I think central to the mission of like what Harmony and I largely do in our daily lives. Um, But also like if your big thing is climate justice and you're just like aware of abortion rights and and you're doing what you can to support, that's also cool. Nobody has the capacity to be like the top warrior for every single cause in the world. You know, it's okay to like pick one or two things you're really, really, really well-versed on and you know a lot about and have a more cursory knowledge and understanding and opinion that's informed by, like, good sources about other things, you know? 
Yeah, you can't be expert in everything, but you should still try and fight for equality in some capacity for everything, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Which sounds exhausting, but not if you're, like, setting up boundaries, hopefully. Yeah. All right. Well, that's my not (laughs) Maggie's like, hope and joy, and I'm like, this is... uh, uh." Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I don't know if that's how I actually feel... But it's the message that I think I want to believe. And therefore, it's the message I'm going to say, you know? I appreciate it. I do appreciate it. It's the message we need. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, next week, I am, I'm alone on RGBC. Uh, but I have a very exciting interview oh, yeah. coming for you all because I talked to uh, Tashi Buyan about her book which i think is coming out tuesday this coming tuesday a show for two which was really good and really cute and very exciting so a little bit of a different tone next week still gonna be a good episode i hope you enjoy it yay yes go out there and fight uh reproductive justice and yeah tune in next week to hear maggie with her interview all right goodbye folks bye you can follow us at rgbc pod on instagram at rebel girls book club on facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.